be seen and to see. Light from the margins. Dennis Edwards' book that you've been studying in your series, Light from the Margins, is this, and I quote, it has a passionate affirmation of the power already present among the marginalized. A passionate affirmation of the power that is already present from the mar among the marginalized. We are here today, this morning, to embrace this power in our collective effort to become more like Christ. Bob and Corey, your pastors, have been doing that for me personally as a marginalized individual for a decade, for a long time, one of them for decades. Bob, for over 15 years, has treated me like a ministry equal. My voice, my thoughts, my insights, my understanding, my gifting have been recognized by Bob as something that matters and it needs to be called out and respected and held high. Corey, just this last week, spoke words to me that brought me to tears. He sees me as a friend and an equal in our efforts to mutually drink deeply from the word of God, to deeply know sacred scripture and text. Why tears? Because for a long time, churches and Christian communities that I belong to did not see my voice as an equal. It's only been for the past six years that I've attended a church that invites the voice of women to teach from the pulpit as an ordained woman. So these cheerleading voices of your pastors are faint and few in my history, but the good news is you remember the good guys. I'm here to talk about the one, the one who holds a megaphone for the voice of the marginalized, the one who puts a spotlight on the marginalized, whether that's gender, economic, political, religious, race, your immigration status, and the list goes on. This person holds the spotlight and claims the worth, the value, the power that lies in the margins. Think about a margin on a paper. It's on the outside, right? It's not invited to the party. It stands as a metaphor, the ones whose presence and voice are not seen and not heard, not recognized, not called forth, not invited to the table, but not, but not with Jesus. Today we're going to do a flyover of just of three passages in Scripture. We're going to fly over and we're not, there's so much we could teach from each of these passages, but we're going to just be looking for what is, what can I learn about the God who sees the marginalized. Luke's gospel is filled with stories of people who live on the margin, more than any other gospel. And the way Luke defines that is someone who considers them who's inferior by their culture standards. Again, in Luke's gospel, that would be due to race, gender, age, economics, and politics. So in Luke 7, we just sang about this, which is amazing and beautiful, you have a woman the passage tells us that she's a woman who was a sinner. Those two things, that's it. And she's an uninvited guest at a dinner party where Simon the Pharisee is having a dinner for Jesus. What we do know about this woman is that she had a questionable sexual history. We know that because Simon, we can hear his interior monologue, and he is appalled that she touches Jesus because of her past. She had a reputation. And Simon's thoughts were... Jesus should have known who this woman was what, and what her, her past was. So she's identified by both her gender and her sinful reputation. How often do we walk down the street 
or look at someone and we go, they're blank and blank. They're blank and they're blank. They're a certain color and they don't have a home. They're a certain economic status and they numb their life with pain with drugs. But we we just say that. And that and we summarize the complexity and the depth of an individual by saying they're blank and blank, like this passage in scripture, like Simon the Pharisee does. And what happens is our brains, our brains, the ones judging, actually begin to believe those things about other people. We begin to believe that we can reduce somebody to being blank and blank. And the very unfortunate thing that happened is that individual can begin to believe those things. That that's all of who I am. But not with Jesus. But not with Jesus. Simon the Pharisee, throughout the Gospel of Luke, we find... Pharisees that are constantly either trying to accuse Jesus of something or criticize him. Now, Simon definitely could have had some genuine thoughts of Jesus, but he invited him to dinner to trap him. He wanted to prove that this man who was gaining all this popularity was a false prophet. He wanted to try to find him as a fraud. So we're invited, like the woman with the alabaster jar, we're invited to stand at this dinner party and look on the inside. So during cultural dinner parties like this in the Middle East, the door would be wide open, and the important people are inside dining, and the not-so-important people are on the outside, but they're, they're invited to look in. And we know that they're sitting around a circle, right? And so their feet are on the outside. They're, they're, they're laying down, so they're, they're all facing the center eating, and so that's why Jesus' filthy, dirty feet are on the outside. So we know that this woman presses in, right? She presses in. What, and we know the story. Most of us know this story. She brings everything she has to Jesus. Her tears to wipe his feet. Her hair to wipe them. And the only thing of value that we know that she has is the alabaster jar that she breaks open and pours on his feet. Jesus reads the judgment, right? He reads the judgment in people's minds, including Simon the Pharisee's. And in a a dramatic turn of events, he does this. He turns towards the woman, and he says to Simon, do you see her? Do you see this woman? Luke 7, 44. He goes beyond the material sight, and he asks Simon to see her. I entered your house, Simon, and you gave me no water for my feet but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And she anointed my head with oil. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Do you see this woman? She is acquainted with the truth of God. Do you see her? Simon is invited to see who is before him, the truth of God that is before him. Do you see her worth? She is the one who has been forgiven much, the one who loves out of deep gratitude, and the one who can teach you, Simon the Pharisee, she can teach you about Jesus' mission of recovery of sight to the blind. Simon, you see your blindness can be recovered from the margins. 
In Luke chapter 7, in this encounter, we encounter a God who sees the marginalized, calls forth their true identity, and don't miss what else is here. We discover the God who sees the wrong that is done to the marginalized. Simon is called out for his treatment of this woman and his judgments of her, and it doesn't end there. He declares that she has been forgiven, and she has offered a blessing and a promise of peace. In God's upside-down kingdom, the dinner party host, who thought he had the answers, is called on the carpet, and the uninvited party guest is lifted high. The one at the party who were looking to be justified were brought down, and the lowly were lifted. That is the kingdom of God. Simon, you didn't see her, but I, I, the God of the universe, do and did. Okay, second flyover is Genesis 16. I've talked to you about this before, and we're going to talk about it again. It's my uh, favorite passage in the Bible to study. But did you know before Father Abraham, the song that we teach our kids, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Did you know that there was Mother Hagar? You know that before the covenant blessing that the Veggie Tales song is on, that we teach in every Sunday school class of Genesis 17. Do you know before that is Genesis 16? Do you know before Jesus made the great, great, mighty promise to Abraham that I will make you a great nation and promised land and prosperity, he made a promise to Hagar in the desert. So what we find out in Genesis 16 is we have Abraham and Sarah not able to have children. The first verse of Genesis 16, Sarah, Abram's wife, bore him no children. So Sarah and Abraham devise a man-sized solution to a God-shaped problem. They come up with their own fleshly solution to a spiritual problem. And she, Sarah tells Abram to go have sex with the teenage mistress. A violation that is so severe that it hap- if that happened in today's culture, both Abraham and Sarah would both be landed in jail. Hagar is a young, poor, single, and religiously marginalized individual. And she is indebted as a lifetime slave to Sarah. So what happens is she gets pregnant. We know this. And something happens when, when Hagar, for the very first time, rele- realizes that she has something that of value. She is pregnant with the prophet's child, and she has something of value. So what we know in the text is somehow she looks at Sarah with such a look, and I think it was just a look that said, oh my gosh, I might not have to be your slave. I might have value outside of what you tell me. And it so incited Sarah that she kicked her out of her house. Well, first she yells at her husband, then she kicked her out. And here she ends up in the desert, and God shows up on the scene. An angel of the Lord, and we know it's the God of the universe. And he says to her three things. Her name, Hagar, don't miss it. Nobody said it yet in the story. Oh, they've said slave and slave girl and mistress. But they haven't said her name. 
But what does the God of the universe do to the marginalized? Says our name. Hagar. Next thing he says, where did you come from? Well, that's not an easy story to tell. Where did you come from? I mean, do you want the details? Because they're not pretty. Dr. Kurt Thompson, trauma therapist, Christian, I would say the leading expert in the world on combining faith with trauma, has this to say. When does healing begin? Healing begins when we're able to tell it. This is a therapist. He's all over the news. I don't know if you've seen him. He's got podcasts, his books, Soul of Shame. He's brilliant. But this is when he says healing begins. This is from a psychiatrist. When we're able to tell our story in the presence of someone who will, who will listen without instruction. Where'd you come from? The God of the universe is saying, I want to begin the healing in your life, which will start with you telling me your story. God enters the marginalized story, offers dignity, said her name, and offers her the beginning of healing. And then he says, where are you going? He says, where are you going to an individual who doesn't know where her next meal is coming from? What would it feel like for Hagar to be sitting there asking where, her, where she was going? I don't know what it would feel like, but I know what it did. It opened the drawer for truth to come in. For the God of the universe who said, I know your future. He engages with her. He promises her the son that is in her belly, names him, names his gender, and tells her the possibility about her future where her family will live protected. She is going to have a hard life. He doesn't say it's going to be easy. But he promises to be with her and protection. And the last thing I don't want you to miss here is he tells her he heard her cry. Okay, the passage in Genesis 16 said, God heard your cry. It doesn't say, and it's important, I heard of your cry. I might hear of Lil's pain, but I don't hear her cry and it also doesn't say he heard her prayer. We're walking around with cries and aches so deep that we, we can't utter a prayer for it. Marginalized have pain that is so deep. God hears your cry. He hears the actual ache of our souls. Don't miss it. So what does she do? What does Hagar, this woman, marginalized, thrown out of the home, pregnant teenager do. She names God. Elroy, I've seen the seer. Actually, it was a question. The name she gave for God was a question. Have I seen the seer? Could it be so beautiful and so powerful that the God of the universe would visit me? Have I seen the seer? She's the only person in all of our texts, Old and New Testament, that was ever given the privilege to formally name God. 
last one. So we have the alabaster jar, right? Have you seen her? Jesus says to Simon, because I do. And you have Hagar, who saw the seer. And now we have a woman at a well. We, again, most of us know the story of John chapter 4. This woman goes to the well in the heat of the day. She wants to avoid the other women, most likely the gossip. She again, are you seeing the pattern? Has a questionable sexual past. We know that Jesus, the, the passage tells us he had to go through Samaria. I taught this passage a few weeks ago in Curtis Bay, Brooklyn area, a large group of women. I said, if I go from Curtis Bay to Towson, do I have to go through Baltimore City? They said, no, you don't. We've got a big old belt where you can go around. Same thing right here. Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. There was a beltway to get to Judea from where he was going to get to Jerusalem. He had to go through because there was a woman going to be at the well at noon that day for him to meet. So in their conversation, she asks a lot of questions. She diverts his attention. He tries to get her to talk about the real. Remember, she's marginalized. What did we talk about marginalized people? They don't always believe the truth of their value. So she kept skirting the issue when he wanted to talk. And so finally, he cuts to the chase, and he says to her, go and get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. He required her story, the most painful part, to be spoken and to be heard, back to Kurt Thompson, in the presence of love. In the presence of love. Why? So healing can begin. And then at one point, she turns to him and says, I think she's beginning to get it. You, you saw this with the woman with the alabaster jar. You saw it with Hagar. She's beginning to understand something about the love of God for those that are marginalized. The love of God for all of us. That would be all of us. And she says to him, I, I've heard the Messiah is coming. If this were a movie... This would be the pinnacle point of the film if John chapter 4 were a, a movie. When he turns to her and he says, I who speak to you am he. Did Jesus in that moment just declare his Messiahship for the very first time in all of history? Not one person had been told yet that he was the Messiah not to one of his 12 male disciples, but to a woman with a questionable sexual history at a well in the desert, in the heat of day. Her response, she runs. She leaves her water jar because what? She's got more important business. She becomes the very first evangelist, telling the whole town, might from the margins, So in each of these passages, I'm just going to wrap up and tell you a few things we learned, and I'm going to end with a story, a mama's story. He sees us. I say us. 
because all of us are walking around with scars of being marginalized, some more deeper than others. We need to know that he sees us. He hears our cries. The silent cries you carry today, the ones that haven't been given words or even been uttered as prayers, the deep aches, he hears them. He comes to us. Both Hagar and the woman at the well, he went to them. He silences our oppressors. In his, in his book, Dr. Dennis Edwards says this, Jesus saves us from our sin, but he saves us also from the wrong done to us. It's important. It's really important for us who have been violated. Don't miss it. He gives voice to the victims. Do you know how the passage in John 4 ends, the woman at the well? Many in the town believed because of her testimony. There's power when the marginalized walk in truth and the beauty of who they really are. My prayer for you today is that you would know the height, the depth, and the breadth of God's love for you. My son, when he was three years old, you play this game, right? Moms, we do this. Whether you're a mom or you had a mom and you did this with her. I love you. I love you more. I love you to the moon. I love you to the moon and back. I love you to the moon and back infinity. So we were going back and forth, Quinn and I, with how much we loved each other, but I had him. I said, Quinn, I love you more because he's my fourth son, but I, we had a little trouble getting pregnant with him. We had three boom, boom, boom fast and then a little break. But so for six months to a year, I said, I tried to get pregnant with you. So I said, before you were even in my belly, I loved you. Before you were even conceived, before the, the sperm and the egg came together, I loved you. And I knew I had him. And he goes, oh, mom. When I was with God in heaven, and I looked out on all the moms in the earth, I chose you. Today, Mother's Day, every man, woman, and child here today, if you heard nothing else, I want you to hear this. He chose you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence here. Thank you for your message. Thank you for there's power in the margins. Thank you for the woman with the alabaster jar and Hagar and the woman at the well. Most of all, Jesus, thank you that you chose us and you choose us today. Amen.